you know, I was doing some thinking uh, about uh, what we were, what we've been going through on Sunday nights, and I was doing some calculations, and actually it's been uh, almost, well not almost, it's been exactly seven weeks, if you can believe it, since we were last in Philippians. Uh, through one thing or another, <laughs> we've been, uh, had to hit pause on that for a long while uh, with this event and that event, VBS and church picnics and uh, other, uh, other events around the church that have prevented us from it. So uh, it's been seven weeks since we were last here, uh, which is a long time. So I'm not going to quiz you on where we were or what we've been talking about um, because I can't even remember what I had for breakfast on Friday. So uh, anyways, we've entered into chapter two. This is chapter two of Philippians. Um, and as we've been saying, this is one of the most beautiful letters of the Apostle Paul uh, that is in the New Testament. It is one that has a lot of meaning for us, and it's one that has a lot of favor amongst Christians throughout the ages. It's a letter that we've been noting is not very doctrinal. It's more devotional. It's, it's more of Paul's pastoral heart. He doesn't come at them to try to correct some sort of conduct, or so, he doesn't try to uh, intervene in some sort of problem. He is coming alongside this church that he loves and is encouraging them in the faith that they can have uh, as those who are amongst God's sons and daughters. And here we've entered into chapter 2, which is easily, I would say, probably the most important chapter within this letter. Uh, And perhaps even one of the most important sections in which we are going to investigate tonight in the entire Bible. Uh, These couple verses that begin this particular chapter, Philippians chapter 2, are just loaded with some of the the most core doctrines that we hold uh, to our Christian faith. And it's it's interesting that Paul just kind of uh, leans into them without really explaining them. He doesn't take time to uh, digest them, so to speak, like he would perhaps in like Romans. Uh, He just kind of, this is what we believe. This is who Jesus is. And this is what ought to define us as a church. As we've been noting, though, just we'll get you caught up a little bit. In Philippians chapter 2, he's been highlighting, as we noted in the first four verses, this very predominant theme, this thread which is going to be tied throughout this chapter, chapter 2, this thread of humility, which ought to define those that belong to Jesus Christ. As we began in this, um, in this particular chapter, uh, where he says in verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And we were noting just how this uh, mindset of, of humility ought to define those who are in the church. After he spends those first uh, 30 verses in chapter 1 really explaining what we noted was the life of joy that can be found in Christ, Paul is now turning in chapter 2 to the example of joy that is obviously found in Christ. uh, As we have noted throughout that he is pushing that name, that title, Christ. Uh, we have we we've noted at the beginning of the study that that joy is obviously a very predominant theme, uh, but it's specifically joy that's found in Jesus Christ. Christ is a title and a name which appears throughout this letter almost three times as much as the word joy does or rejoicing. Regardless, the Paul's premise here. I think which is pretty evident going from chapter 1 to chapter 2. It's just that the life of joy 
to which we as the church are called to live is the life of joyful humility and unity. It's the essence of which is putting others before yourself. So when he says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And even the verse before that, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. This is what he's getting at. For the church to function as the church and to operate as the church is this lifeblood of humility, which is at its basest level is putting others before yourself. This is how the church grows. This is what the church is nourished on. It's serving others before yourself, putting the needs of those who are around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, before your own. And this is what happens when the truth of the gospel is implanted into sinners who have been captured by the grace of the gospel. And this is what he says In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. This is describing what the church is like. That these things are true, therefore be (laughs) like-minded. And this is also what the gospel, I think, is supposed to generate. As we are evangelizing, as we are spreading the gospel, as we are discipling ourselves and others in the truths of the gospel, we are growing and being formed and fashioned into a people who are united and humbled by this announcement. That there is, to answer Paul's sort of rhetorical questions, there is consolation in Christ. There is comfort of love. There is fellowship of the Spirit precisely because these things are true. And we keep finding these things to be true and we keep reminding ourselves of these truths and we find ourselves humbled and united in that same humbledness. And who better then to epitomize, to example this life that Paul's been describing and is now going to lean into more, this life of joyful humility. Who better to epitomize that than the one who is the fullness of God's grace and truth in bodily form? (laughs) Jesus Christ, of course. This is what he does here in this section. We have this embodiment of the humility with which which uh, Paul is is advocating for. That's that transitional verse there in verse 5. Let this mind be in you. What's the mind that he's already been talking about? Again, verse 3, think about others before yourselves. Uh, Put their needs before your own needs. Think about ways you can love them in lowliness, in service towards them. And this is the mind that's in Christ. And as he says there, let this mind also be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is what Christ has brought to bear throughout his life on earth, a life of humility. That's why Paul is here saying with boldness, with confidence, hey church, this is the mind that that you ought to have. A mind of humility, 
a mind united by the truth of what God's word says. And we've already seen what this humility is made up of. We noted that uh, seven weeks ago. We noted that, though, that in these first four verses, we noted that humility is made up of truth and fellowship and deference and service. But what does it look like then? What, is it, what does it look like for these features, these qualities to be exemplified and brought into their full effect? To be epitomized. To, as we've said, be embodied. Well, we don't have to wonder because Paul gives us exactly what that looks like here in verses 5 through 8. In which I think we're going to see a couple things about the life of Jesus. Yes, even these short verses give us a sweeping view of the life of Christ. So I want to note three things tonight uh, from these verses. Number one, uh, that give us a good view of what humility looks like, of what this life of humility looks like. First, we have to note in verse 6 where he came from. Where he came from. Notice verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, we're going to take our time through these verses precisely because I think these, again, as we said, are some of the most important verses in all of the Bible. And this one, I would say, is right up there at the top. This verse contains much of what we ought to hold dear in our Christian faith, and we are right then to consider it and pause to consider it deeply. Paul here is stating that the uh, original sort of being of Christ Jesus was, to quote him, in the form of God. Before time began, before uh, there was ever, before God, the triune God spoke and, and earth was created and all those things that we find in Genesis 1. Prior to Genesis 1, God, the Son, the Spirit, and the Father have existed in perfect unity. That's the interesting thing to think about, that the Trinity has always been and always is and always will be. There has never been a time when God was not. Therefore, also, there has never been a time when the Son of God was not. It, it, all of the, the, the Trinity has always operated in perfect unity and in perfect eternity. Because likewise, all things the Father is, so is Christ. These are things that are hard to often grasp and, and wrap our minds around. But what is Paul is leaning towards into here is that this is the great descent that the Son of God makes. He is not just like God. He is God. That's what that word form sort of indicates. He is in the, the having all things equal uh, of nature and of essence with God. So is the Son. He would make this even more evident in his letter to the Colossians. In that, that, that great chapter 1 of Colossians where he talks about all these things who Christ is. And he says in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And he's leaning into the same thing here. That this Christ, this Jesus Christ, the teacher from Nazareth, he's not just a good teacher. He's not just a really good philanthropist. He's not just a humanitarian who's done really charitable things. He is God. 
He is the skin and bone, if you will, manifestation of everything that God is like. Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews would say it similarly. That he is the express image of God's person. That's who Jesus is. That's who Christ is. And therefore, that's why Paul says that who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What's he saying there? What is he, he's saying there essentially that as Jesus was manifested in the earth, as the Son of God come to earth, he wasn't plundering heaven. That's essentially how you can translate that little phrase. He wasn't plundering heaven when he claimed to be God. Because he is God. He makes that very clear throughout his ministry that whenever he was announcing and asserting his deity, he was not sort of trying to operate in a place where he didn't belong. And once again, we can here now compare and contrast both the first Adam and the second Adam. We noted that a couple weeks ago when we taught on Genesis 3, but I think even here it bears repeating. Adam thought he could be like God, and so he plunged into a realm where he did not belong. He was robbing God by trying and pretending he could be equal with God. Such is what plunged humanity into ruin. (laughs) And here we see the second Adam succeeds where the first Adam fails because he uh, uh, was God, is God. Therefore, when he claims to be God, he's not robbing heaven. He's not operating in a place where he doesn't belong because he is God. He is the son of God and all things the father is, so is he. This is exactly what he was born to do, to bring to bear exactly who God is. And this is the wonderful thing about Jesus Christ, the son of God in the flesh, is that he gives us a glimpse of who Yahweh is. Have you ever thought about that? This is who Jesus is. I like this paragraph. It comes from a book called Gentle and Lowly by a writer named Dane Ortland, And he has this wonderful paragraph regarding this. And he says, quote, Jesus is the embodiment of who God is. He is the tangible epitomization of God. Jesus Christ is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. And in him, we see heaven's eternal heart walking around on two legs and time and space. And when we see the heart of Christ then throughout the four Gospels, we are seeing the very compassion and tenderness of who God himself most deeply is. I love that thought. So often people like to try to put a dividing line between God and Jesus as if you could separate them. There's a very, we've talked about this before, but I think I've heard it in a couple different places and it just makes me so frustrated that we have this caricatured version of God who operates in the Old Testament as a grumpy old man who wants to just wipe everyone out because he's just grumpy and mean. He's a, he's just a, he's a, he's a miser and he's a, he's an ogre, so to speak. And then you have Jesus who comes along and he's almost like this hippie God who says, everyone come to me. I'm full of love and compassion and grace. And we like those thoughts. We like those ideas, forgetting the fact that Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry that he hasn't come to bring priests but a sword. Forgetting the fact that Jesus is everywhere prophesied that he too is going to come as a mighty warrior. And forgetting too that in Exodus chapter 34, God, Yahweh himself, calls himself a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
only to say that there's no discrepancy between God and Jesus. There's, there's no dividing line. There's no, there's, there's no line of demarcation where you can say this is where God ends and this is where Jesus begins. Because Jesus is God. He's the visible expression of who God is and what he's like. You want to know what God would be like if he came to earth? Look at Jesus. He's God in the flesh. This is the amazing thing that that we have to confront ourselves with. That where he came from, he came from heaven above. And those who say that this Jesus of Nazareth never claimed to be God are just delusional. They've obviously never read the scriptures or given them any amount of time. Especially they haven't read John. John's entire gospel is that very premise. Jesus is God. Such is why his gospel is filled with abundance of miracles. Not to astound you with what Jesus the magician can do. But to astound you with precisely this. That Jesus is God in the flesh. That's his aim. Paul too in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He confirms the same thing. That, our, that God is our savior. I'll just read it really quick because I think it's pretty profound. We spent some time in this a long time ago if you remember. When we studied First and Second Timothy and Titus. But Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of, note this, God our savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. It's no accident that Paul explains and expresses at the very beginning of the first pastoral letter that their Savior is God. God in the flesh is the one who was nailed to a tree. You see, as we spent some time on, very early on, there were many who were already going into very harebrained heresies regarding the identity of Jesus Christ, saying that he was something other than what he was, which is God in the flesh. Such is why Paul spends so much time in those pastoral letters reaffirming that truth, saying, hold fast to sound doctrine, that this is true, cling to this, preach this. It's the apostles' testimony that Jesus is God. And we can cling to that as well. He is both Lord and Messiah. And this is what makes the gospel what it is. That Jesus the Christ is the Son of God. Come down for us and to us. Which brings us to verse number 7 and point number 2 here. Not only where he came from but where he went. Notice verse 7. But made himself... Or let's read verse 6 again. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. We have the deity of Christ fully in view. I hope that you do. That Jesus Christ is not just a good man. He's both God and now we have to say he is man as well. He is 100% God and 100% man in one body. This is what makes this so astounding. 
We see where he came from, and we see now where he goes, where he went in the appointed time that God only knew. As what Galatians 4 says, in the fullness, when the fullness of time was come, the Son of God made himself of no reputation. That is, he emptied himself and took upon him, as it says there, the form of a servant. And he appeared, he incarnated. He manifested, he revealed himself within his creation as one of his creatures, or to quote him, in the likeness of men. That's essentially what Paul is here saying and noting. This is where Jesus went. He walked upon this same earth upon which we walk. The dirt that you can feel beneath your feet and you can grab with your fingers is the same type of earth and dirt with which he himself interacted with. And even more to the point, he felt the same things you and I feel. He was afflicted in all of the ways that you and I are afflicted. Hebrews 4 is that wonderful verse. That he was the great high priest who was touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And it's because he was the great high priest, because he was God in the flesh, and because he was God in the flesh, he was also the great high priest because he was familiar with the things that we endured. Again, these are perhaps difficult things to wrap our minds around. And that's okay. These are difficult truths to, to keep keep a hold of. Even if anyone says that they fully understand the concept that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, I would say, you likely don't. But it's something that we cling to. And I think one of the great sort of endeavors of our discipleship, as we were noting from this morning, is just examining the Gospels to see the different layers in which we can possibly see God, the God-man, sort of interacting with his apostles. But I want to focus on those words in verse 7. But made himself of no reputation. These are, as Pastor Nathan alluded to, what is called in the Greek kenosis. And much, much words have been spoken and written on exactly what Paul is here talking about when he, when he makes that statement. What does he mean when he says, made himself of no reputation? What does he exactly mean when he says, emptied himself? I think we're right to dwell on that a little bit. <laughs> But I also I don't mean this to sound like a cop out, and maybe it will. I don't know. But in the end, I I don't think that we are meant to try and figure this all out. You can write a paper on it. Maybe you can write an essay on it, and good for you. But I don't think in the end we're meant to come to this passage and be. I know exactly what this means. <laughs> I can figure this out. I can figure out exactly what it means that the Son of God came to this earth and emptied himself. Actually, I think it's better off that we leave this passage sort of what Paul intimates elsewhere, that we cling to that mystery of faith. He says that in 1 Timothy 3. 
And he says that so often throughout his letter, this, this mystery with which is revealed by Christ. I think instead of trying to put all these little words and doctrines into neat little compartments, I think it would be much better for us to read this and just be astounded at the mystery of it all. But even still, in these couple of verses... The Philippians were given everything that they would ever need to understand the profundity of the gospel. It's just this. God comes down. God comes down where he came from and where he went. God comes down to our level while still being God. He descends to the earth. The Son of God does, and yet does not give up anything that makes him God when he came to earth. The Son of God is still God the Son when he incarnates and comes out of Mary's womb, crying as any infant does. You know, that's the astounding thing. He doesn't become God. Jesus didn't become God or grow into God. When he's born, he is God in the flesh. A little baby as an infant crying in a small inn in Bethlehem is God in the flesh. He doesn't become God later on. That Jesus of Nazareth is that who, who comes into this world crying as any baby does is, yes, even there, the son of God. And he didn't empty himself of what made him divine. And now this is really tricky. And this, I think, is what exactly has made people stumble and made people question and try to figure out exactly what Paul is talking about here. And it's somewhat technical, and I don't mean to digress or bore you with technicalities. But I think we have to understand it perhaps like this. That when Jesus came to earth as the Son of God in the flesh, he almost resisted the use of his divinity to make his own path easier. You see that throughout his life, where there are moments of these manifestations of his divinity, healing people, walking on water, making those bread and fishes extend to 5,000 plus people. There were moments where he was revealing who he was. And yet, even still, we know from especially passages like we reference Hebrews 4, but I would say even more so, one of my favorite passages, of course, which you probably know, Isaiah 53, that he endured everything that you and I are familiar with. The feelings of our infirmities. Let me read, well, I'll go there just so you can grasp this, because I've never really thought about this before. If you have, maybe it'll be familiar to you. But let me read this verse. You're familiar with it. Isaiah 53, verse 3. It says, He is despised. This is that great prophecy of the man of sorrows. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. And he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now that title there, the man of sorrows, is one that we know. Referring perhaps, yes, to the sorrows that he would endure throughout his life, most especially at the cross. But that phrase there that has struck me, especially this past week of studying, is that he was acquainted with our grief. Literally, he was introduced to the things that vex us. (laughs) 
having been unfamiliar with them prior to being incarnated. And here we see exactly, you want to know what grief means? It literally means mental or physical grief. Yes, we could translate this sickness. Sickness is not a result or of personal sin. And yet even here we could say that he was familiar with what it means to be sick. To have a body that was, uh, that was fatigued. To have a life that was enduring grief and hardship and aches. Again, this is trying to get our minds around the descent of the Son of God. He comes into the flesh and is familiar with everything with which you and I are familiar with. All the emotions that we face. And he didn't employ his deity to make his path easier. I don't mean to say that this particular piece of cinema that I'm going to reference makes it exactly true and is accurate. (laughs) But I would say that the most recent example of this that I found so profound that sort of gets at what I'm trying to say, if you will, is actually that new Christian show called The Chosen. I binge-watched that show recently. I was really moved by a lot of it. But one of the things that stuck out to me is precisely, I think, what Paul is getting at here. Because there's a scene in the show where it portrays Jesus making a fire. And I love this little scene. Because instead of snapping his fingers and there's flames, instead of speaking a word and then there's a little campfire where he can roast his fish, it shows Jesus struggling, putting two sticks together to make a fire in front of him. And it struck me that that's exactly what the Son of God came into this life to do. To feel the feelings of our, perhaps, frustrations of being able to start a fire. And it sounds so simplistic, and it sounds so innocuous, but that little scene gives us a glimpse, and I think what Paul is here talking about. He made himself of no reputation. And As he says there, and took upon him the form of a servant. It was made in the likeness of men. You want to know how far God will stoop to save the likes of you and me? He will set aside the prerogatives and the glories of his deity. He will make himself of no reputation. As it says in Isaiah 53, 12, he will empty himself. He will pour out his soul unto death for you and for me. What a fact that is. Where he came from and where he went. This amazing descent of the Lord Jesus, of the Son of God, who comes to live as the perfect God-man for you and for me. Where he came from, where he went. And also, number three, just lastly and simply, why he went. Let this mind, verse 5, be in you, back in Philippians 2. Which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why did he do this? Why did he make this descent? Why did he appear as as, uh, God in the flesh? What's the point and purpose behind all this self-emptying of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he tells us, Paul does. Ultimately, it's to serve and die. 
This is the whole reason for his coming. It's actually, I think, to show the way in which God loves the world. You know, that's a way that you can translate John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's some, I think, actually uh, better English translations. Which render that first phrase like this. God loves the world in this way. That he sends his son. And on it goes. That's essentially what the Greek there can be translated to. This is the manner in which God loves the world. He sends his son to this earth to take our place. His son comes down, lives the life that we were bound to live by the law. He says that in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Matthew, that he came to fulfill all righteousness. Such as what Jesus does by his life. He fulfills all righteousness. And pays the penalty for our sin. And he does so as evidencing this joyful and humble service. It's the reason he came into the world. As he he so clearly denotes in Mark chapter 10 verse 45. Remember that verse that Jesus says. I have not come into the world to be served but to serve. And be the ransom for all men. So you see this embodiment of humility is nowhere better found than in the son of God himself. He's the penultimate version of putting other people's needs before yourself. (laughs) You want to know what it actually and ultimately looks like for someone to, as it says, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves? It's Jesus. (laughs) Who esteems not just, uh, just those that are around him, but he esteems the world better than himself. So he makes himself of no reputation to save them from themselves. The Son of God saw the plight of man, one of final and ultimate condemnation. He considered man's situation. He took it on as his own. He looked on every man, not on looked not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This is the mind that was in Christ Jesus. A mind of humility, a mind of service. And he claimed this rank that was so far beneath him. He took upon him the form of a servant. I always think of that wonderful passage in John chapter 13. I think it's chapter 13 where where the disciples, the apostles are in the upper room and, uh, and, and Jesus takes that cloth and he begins washing his apostles' feet. It's a moment that, I've, that we've examined a couple times when we were going through the life of Peter, when we were going through First and Second Peter. And it's a moment of profound humility. Jesus is literally taking on the garb and the function and the office of a servant. This is what Jesus is embodying here, this life of joyful, humble service. Ultimately here rendered, as Paul says, and he became obedient, yes, even unto death, even unto the death of the cross. 
You want to know how far God will go to save you? He will nail himself to a cross of Roman cruelty. A instrument of torture. An instrument that was used to punish only those who deserved the most wretched of fates. It wasn't just the fact that he died. He died on a cross. A public showing of shame and gruesomeness and violence. A one that, was, uh, that you could look to and be scandalized by. One that deserved your scorn and derision for those who are nailed there. And yes, that's exactly what Paul gets at in Galatians where it says that he becomes the curse for us. Galatians 3 uh, verse 13. Let me read it real quick. Paul says that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. This is what Jesus does. Why he went for to redeem us from the curse. To fulfill all righteousness. To save us from sin. To answer the call that we must have perfection on our accounts. If we are to enter into the kingdom of God. Such is what Christ has done for us. And he does so. As the son of God. Coming in the form of a servant. Being made as Paul says in the likeness of men. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And through this death, through this obedience, through this humility, the whole world is made right again. This is what can make us joyful. It's the resounding news of the gospel. The good news that we share is precisely this. That God himself humbled himself to us and for us. That he also might be glorified and that we also might be redeemed. This is the astounding fact that Paul here gets to. And it's one that we likewise ought to meditate on. God comes down. God is the one who saves us. As Paul says, as we also mentioned, God our Savior. Let us bow our heads in a word of prayer.